You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In the late afternoon, Little Bee's sister, Nikiruka, came down out of the jungle and found her hiding place. She sat down next to her. They hugged for a long time. They were happy that Nikiruka had managed to follow Little Bee's trail, but they were scared because it meant that others could do it too. Nikiruka looked into her sister's eyes and said that they must make up new names for themselves. It was not safe to use their true names, which spoke so loudly of their tribe and of their region. Nikiruka said her name was Kindness now. Her young sister wanted to reply to Kindness, but she could not think of a name for herself. The two sisters waited. The shadows were deepening. A pair of hornbills came to crack seeds in the trees above their heads. And then... Sitting at my kitchen table, she said she remembered this so clearly that she could almost reach out and stroke the fuzzy black back of the thing. A bee blew in on the sea breeze, and it landed between the two sisters. The bee was small, and it touched down on a pale flower. Frangipani, she told me, although she said she wasn't sure about the European name. Oh, and then the bee flew off again, without any fuss. She hadn't noticed the flower before the bee came, but now she saw that the flower was beautiful. She turned to kindness. My name is Little Bee, she said. When she heard this name, kindness smiled. Little Bee told me that her big sister was a very pretty girl. She was the kind of girl the men said could make them forget their troubles. She was the kind of girl the women said was trouble. Little B wondered which it was going to be. Chris Cleave is a columnist for The Guardian. His first novel, Incendiary, won the 2006 Somerset Maugham Award. His new novel is Little B. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you, Rick. It's really great to uh, talk with you again. One of the things I think that you do really well, and we've talked a little bit about this, is to get the language patterns down. And I wanted to talk in particular about the way you write out um, the Jamaican English. Mm. Because this is a, a, it's a very peculiar argot, and you really seem to to get it down. Did you like consult the uh, uh, Jamaican newspapers to see how they wrote stuff down, or or talk to people? How did you get that down? Yeah, good question, and it's extremely contentious actually. The way that you that you write Jamaican English on the page, there's lots of different schools of thought. If you read a Jamaican newspaper. You know, um, they're, they're written in very grammatical English, often using a vocabulary that's richer than you'd expect in an English newspaper. Really, almost quite melodramatic English um, would be like a typical um, Nigerian newspaper news story, uh, but, but written in standard English spelling. Whereas when, you, you know, when I listen to a Jamaican voice... The, the pronunciation is so different from the way that English is formally spelled um, that I didn't think it was right to to write it as formal English. I'd, so what I do is I just write it down um, as I hear it, but I don't put in a bunch of apostrophes and 
you know, punctuation marks to indicate that these are abbreviated forms of full English words. I mean, I treat it as correct and I just transcribe it. Oh, that's a really interesting perception. So that the 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 uh, punctuation would would indicate that it's not correct, and mm. you're you're taking them their language as correct. That's sure. Yeah. I mean, if someone drops a, a G, for example, off the end of a word, you know, if if they say strong instead of strong, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm not going to write S T R O N apostrophe because that's a judgment on on a language which I'm not trying to judge. I'm just trying to to transcribe it. I'm trying to represent how it's spoken. And um, so, yeah, I, it's actually, it's, it's very political, the way that, that a language is, is written down, the way that non-canonical Englishes are written down. I mean, this it's a huge field of study, actually. <laughs> and so it's, it's not one that I've stepped into lightly. You know, I, I, I had to make a really... Um, strong decision, I think, um, one way or the other about how I was going to represent this language. Because uh, it, it, it's, it is its own language. It's correct. It's beautiful. And I just wanted to, to write it on the page. Did you cons- What kind of official sources did you consult? Did you talk to people? Did you show Jamaicans what you wrote down? Oh, there's a, there's, um, a, uh, there's a Jamaican English dictionary, uh, two Jamaican English dictionaries that I used. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that have... Um, a bunch of the extra vocabulary and a bunch of idioms in there. Um, there's uh, there's lots of um, attempts to transcribe Nigerian and Jamaican English that that exist. Um, a lot of South London writers, um, you know, use uh, a patois when they when they write, mm-hmm. um, and. So, so you can look at various different people's ways of how they've tackled this, this sort of non-standard Englishes, mm-hmm. and in the end, you know, I just decided I had to, I had to just write it the way I heard it, and that would be the most honest and straightforward way to do it. Now, this book deals with some uh, themes that are familiar from your last book too, and I'm thinking in terms of Sarah, Andrew, and Lawrence. Um, infidelity and grief, and sure. in particular grief. One of the things you do that I think uh, we heard in the reading that, that's really beautiful is, is your ability to um, address grief and sadness as evidence of survival. Sure, yeah. I, um, I think that um, the bereaved state is a really interesting one. Uh, because people are absolutely sane when they're bereaved, and yet they will act in ways that are strange even to themselves. Um, on a simple level, you know, um, I was talking to a woman whose husband had died, and you know, rationally she knew that the man was dead, um, and yet um, she was still putting out an extra um, serving at breakfast time for him, and you know, when asked why, she would say, "Well, it's in case he comes back," which is it's a crazy thing to say, and yet she's not crazy; she's sane, um, but she's bereaved. And I, I, I'm really interested in that state. I'm interested in um, the, the what what makes someone who's in a heightened state of emotion, what makes them decide, "Well, actually, I'm not going to drive to the shop. 
I'm going to turn left and drive to Scotland instead. <laughs> and, you know, and, what, and what happens? You know, the, there's something really quite beautiful in the human soul which directs us towards novelty when we're, um, when we're bereaved or when we're depressed or when we're really you know, emotionally strung out. We'll do these things that tend to give us new experiences, um, almost as if your body is directing you towards these new experiences, almost as if um, it knows right, that, that what you need is something new. And often this new experience will be quite extreme and it will really change people's life. I mean, I see... I don't see bereavement as a depressing thing. I mean, I see it as a sad thing, um, but it's also the beginning of something. And and that's not just, you know, that that's not a cliche. It's the beginning of something because you will tend to have these really weird experiences that kick off a new story. So as, as a writer, I'm most interested in the people who are in those heightened emotional states. And that's why I'm really interested in people who are bereaved. That's why I'm interested in people who are traumatized. And it's why I'm interested in people whose uh, relationships are breaking down, whose marriages are breaking up, you know, hence the infidelity and stuff that, that characterizes some of my, you know, people in, in, the, in the books. Um, it, and it's not because I'm being morbid. It's actually because I think these are the big transition points in people's lives where, where new stories start and where, you know, where anything is possible. I, I love that part of human life where suddenly the whole weight of your history is lifted off your shoulders and you could act in whatever way seems right in a situation. When everything is stripped back, there you are. What are you going to do? You know, you're, you're a new person again. And uh, these are the moments I love. I find it very hopeful, you know, to write about people who have almost been broken but not quite. And they find a lifeline and they pull themselves back out. Wow. <laughs> That's really... that. That the observation as a writer that that's those are the opportunities where the new stories come from, and that gives you uh, the ability to, I guess, improvise and play with your characters in the ways that you couldn't do if they weren't in those states. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and that's what I mean by saying that I don't, I never plan what they're going to do. It's not like I sketch out a plot of the novel. It's not like I work out intellectually what it means before I do it. All the justification and rationalization that I do is post hoc, just as it is in people's lives. <laughs> because, you know, often, you know, I don't know why I turned left and drove to Scotland for 600 miles instead of turning right and going to buy a bottle of milk. You know, I don't know. Three years later, I'll be able to turn around and say, oh, I did it because, um, you know, I, I remembered that I had a relative in Scotland that I knew I needed to visit. But at the time, you just do things because you do them. I love having characters that just do things because they do them and you know it, um, it, it's it's exciting I, and I, I'm I, I really like people I like their ability to survive things and I, I like um, I like the thing that makes them decide to survive instead of to kill themselves and this is the this is this is the sort of specter that hangs over all my characters in all my work and hangs over all of us as well, right? It's like, well, why are you bothering to get up and go through your day unless you feel that life is suffused with this kind of hope and possibility? And uh, I, I, like, I like trying to get to the heart of that, you know, getting to the heart of what, what gives people joy and what what's that lifeline that they're reaching for and when is that moment that they're going to sort of break through the surface of their life and up onto the 
surface of it and suddenly breathe again. You know, that's um, that's 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 why I love to write. Now you have a really interesting discursion in this book. Uh, Little B talks about horror. Horror. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your interest in horror. Okay. Well, um, Little B in the book makes an observation that that horror. In, in our Western civilizations is, is something that we occasionally need to take a dose of to, to remind ourselves that we're not suffering from it um, chronically. Uh, we'll, we'll go and see a horror movie, right? We'll, we'll, see, um, we'll, we'll go and see something with monsters. Or Increasingly, actually, horror films don't have monsters. They just have human beings who are really particularly brutal. <laughs> and we do that to remind ourselves um, that we don't live in that state permanently. Like we, we have these horror films to remind ourselves that we don't live in a permanent state of fear. And these things have an effect on us. They're, they're awful. And they serve as, I don't know, a memento mori, or they serve as uh, a reminder that we've never had it so good. You know, it's actually a very healthy thing to go and see a horror film mm-hmm. um, and then to come out of the cinema thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> no, um, thank goodness for sunshine. Thank goodness for people who will smile rather than bite my hand off. <laughs> um, and uh, whereas, of course, some of these refugees have been have come from places where people bite people's hands off. Right. I mean, they've, they've come from places where horror is chronic rather than acute. Um, they. There are places right now, you know, in Darfur or in parts of um, Sierra Leone or whatever, where the most unimaginable barbarity goes on, where you know things happen that I don't want to talk about uh, on on the radio or or even think about, you know, just the awful things that people can do to each other that becomes part of daily reality in some places. These are the these are the places that refugees are fleeing from. You know, they, they're coming from places where horror has become a chronic condition. Um, and uh, I, I think it takes them a long time to come down from it. <laughs> you know, they, they arrive in something that's um, theoretically a safe country. It takes a long time to lose that um, really terrified edge and that suspicion that horror is everywhere. Um, and we've grown up in... You know, in a, in a joyful, most of us, in, in a, a difficult life, but an essentially joyful one. And um, a lot of these people haven't. You know, and, and that's that's a big distinction that's made in the book. Horror as as something that, that, that we need to take to remind ourselves that we don't suffer from it. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating was the... Uh, the way that uh, you you talk about money and power, you you open the book with this really great uh, kind of riff on the pound <laughs> coin. Yeah. So yeah. Talk, I like that bit. Yeah, t- tell us about uh, how money informs and economics inform your characters and inform all the lives of all your characters. Infuse it. Sure. Um, well, very simply, they um, little B makes this observation that. Um, money can cross national boundaries uh, with extreme ease, but people can't. And um, she tries to imagine a world where the opposite was true. Um, that's uh, she says. Um, uh, money is uh, money is free to cross borders, and we are free to watch it go. 
She says, this is the human triumph. This is globalization. And she talks about uh, this theory she has that if you could somehow attach yourself to money, if money couldn't move unless it took you with it, um, then we would suddenly be free. And it's... um, it's very sad that we've created this incredibly powerful instrument that is more free than we are, right? I mean, now, for example, you know, I can I could send my money, such as it is, to the United States, but I couldn't send me, right? I mean, I'm a, uh, I wouldn't be allowed to be an American citizen, and um, that's that's it, it's strange. It's strange that we've let we've created this thing which is theoretically our servant, which is money. Um, and it's become our master. It, it, it can, um, it, it, it's freer than we are. And you never see this more acutely than in the lives of refugees um, who are, are financially destitute by definition um, because um, people who are very wealthy just don't have these problems. They can just, they, they, there's always a reason why someone who's very wealthy is allowed into a country. Um, uh, with whatever status, you know. So, so when you're talking about refugee stories, when you're talking about um, people seeking political asylum, um, well, what you're actually talking about is the problems of poor people, <laughs> and most human stories break down to this in the end. So, poor people um, can't do the fun things that rich people can do, and and when that um, gap gets unbelievably wide then um, you get tragedies of unbelievable proportions um, happening. And this is, you know, these are the stories I like to write about. And I like to remind myself that, you know, most of horror can be fixed using money, right? And horror horror can at least be escaped from if you have it. You know, it's this incredible magic that, you know, that some people have and some people don't. One of the things that is really well done in this book is the the portraits uh, of two children, uh, uh, Charlie, i.e. Batman, and uh, little B, who's also a, a child. It's easy yeah, to forget yeah. that because her experience has been so extreme. So could you talk about those two extremes of experience as, as a child? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um, little B is 16 when the, when the novel starts, and... I, I really wanted her to be young. I love the way young people think. I, I love the way they, they, you know, they don't... In The possibility of their own demise is just nowhere in their thinking. They, they, they know they're going to survive. At 16, you know you're going to survive. And you have fear, but um, you've just got this unbelievable energy inside you that, that just won't be beaten. I, I, I just... I, I, I love that about young people the uh just their indomitable resilience actually um so she's had an extremely hard life little b but it hasn't broken her and i think that you know her her youth is one of the things that's helped her um also in the book there's um charlie who's four years old who's um who will answer only the name of batman uh, is this based on personal experience? Yeah, it's based on someone <laughs> I know. He's, he's, uh, yeah, he's my kid. He'll answer only to the name of Batman. Or, uh, when I was writing, 
he was going through this phase where he only would. We literally had to have three Batman costumes. Right? We had to have one that was on him, one that was in the washing machine, and one that was drying and ready to wear. Because he, you know, he would get them filthy, fighting crime, obviously. And uh, he would only take it off when he was in the bath. He would only answer to Batman. He was a superhero. And this is, this is a phase that, um, that young, very young children go through that I'm fascinated in as a writer because it's when they're playing with different identities. And, and this is something that we all do. Um, as we're growing up, you know, he'll be Batman for a bit. Then I should think he'll be Spider-Man for a bit. Then he'll be Red Power Ranger. Um, and then after, you know, as he gets a bit older, he'll be, um, you know, I don't know, Robin Hood. And then he'll be, you know, one of the characters from Dickens or whatever. And and then and he'll be a teenager. He'll be into this pop band particularly, or then that rock band, right? And then this really terrifying industrial techno band, you know, that <laughs> his parents will be frightened of. And then he'll experiment with this religion or that religion. And slowly you try on all of these identities until you converge on the person that you are. And and Charlie and the novel is right at the beginning of this process. You know, the, the you know young boys go through this superhero phase that I find incredibly poignant because they're playing with a really strong, a really magical identity um, that's so powerful that it, it subsumes them entirely. I mean, they uh, he, he will literally only answer to Batman. Um, and because it's a story about uh, immigration, about refugees, about identity, right? you know, literally having identity papers that say you belong in a country and literally having a voice that that conforms to the voices of the people around you. These are the badges that say we belong. These are the badges that say, well, this is me. So everything, everyone in the book is experimenting with a different level of identity. And so um, uh, Charlie uh, is at the very beginning of that process. Sarah, arguably the, the English woman in the story, is... A, is <coughs> approaching the end of that process, right? She's had to shed all the masks that she's worn in her life, as you know, as a wife, as a mother, as a as a busy professional magazine editor, and she's stripped back down just to the very moral centre of who she is. So you've got people in the novel at all of the different um, stages of that process of becoming themselves. Charlie, the little boy, is right at the beginning. Little B's kind of halfway through. And Sarah really doesn't have anywhere left to run and hide, right? She's got to face herself, look in the mirror and decide who she's going to be now. Um, and that's, I guess that's what the novel's about, if it's about anything. This novel has a wonderful um, series of really nicely interlocking emotional arcs. And a as a writer, I ha I'm wondering, did you... Um, you wrote the novel kind of inside out, but when you're in a revision process... Is that when you're? Are you going back and refining the emotional arcs? I, I... Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, once I've worked out what has happened, <laughs> it's almost as if I've you know I've I've witnessed um, a set of events, and I've I've written the first draft, and then I have to go back and make sense of it. So um, then then begins a sort of almost forensic process of um, working out what's happened in what order. Um, working out what the story would look like on a traditional timeline and then working out how to retell it so that it makes sense for the reader. 
Um, so I, I have a, I have two parts in my creative process, if you like. One, which is absolute madness, where the characters just interact with each other and the story happens. And then a second, which is, I think, very traditional story craft, where I work out, um, you know, each person's journey through the story, where it should start, where it should stop, and you know how the narration should work of each character. Yeah, and that's the, that's where I clean the whole thing up and turn it into a novel. Well, and this gets back to, in in a sense, what we do with our own memories in our own lives is we have an experience, and then we go back and, as your one of your characters says, you you create a story out of your life. You have to create a narrative for yourself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we uh, we write ourselves daily. I mean, this is uh, I mean, people sometimes ask me, you know, how do you do what you do? And I say, well, I just think, well, how do you not? <laughs> you know, how do you how how do you not? Um, join the dots of your life in a way that makes sense to you. Um, and that that's all I'm doing when I'm telling a story. I think people do it all the time. Now, how and when does uh, the research fit into this? Or do you research before, after, during, or is, it, is research just some part of the chaotic phase of the whole? Right. Um, I did most of the research first. Um, I... Uh, I researched Nigeria a lot before I started writing. Did you uh, travel there? No, I didn't travel there. Um, the part of Nigeria that I'm interested in, I would still not go to. I mean, I'm 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 really scared of it. The um, the Delta region of Nigeria is uh, a place that um, well, I'm I'm not brave enough to go to right now. Uh, I mean, it, re- it really is a conflict zone at the moment. So uh, by necessity, that was done by talking with people who'd come out of there and, and by researching it. Researched that a lot. Researched speech patterns a lot. Researched uh, detention centres. Spent an enormous length of time, you know, hassling the British government to, to let me into these places with very limited success, actually, because they, you know, they're, they're not keen on talking about these places. And then... I think after about six months to a year of research, I thought I knew enough to start writing. And then, yeah, carried on researching as and when things came up during the writing process that that I needed to find out more about. Um, you know, magazine editing, for example. And Sarah turned into a magazine editor. I had to go and, you know, talk with my friends who do that and, you know, go and spend a day in their office and see what that felt like and, and so on. You do spend a bit of time inside the the British government in this book. And yeah, it, it's it's not the the happiest place in the world. Sure. It's not Disneyland. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you did you spend a lot of time talking with uh, people who worked in the environment that you describe, and, and how how did they how have they reacted to your portrait of it? Right. Yeah. Well, there's a character in the book who's um, a press officer in the British Home Office, which is our you know, Ministry of, of Internal Affairs, I guess. Um, yeah, that's the the Interior Ministry. And um, they, uh, well, I mean, I, I had, this is quite an interesting story. I spent a very long time going through um, the, the formal channels, trying to get an interview with anyone who worked there. Because having spent months um, interviewing lots of people who advocate for asylum seekers and lots of people who are militantly against the way we treat asylum seekers in the UK. Well, I really felt that I needed some balance and I felt that I needed, you know, the official point of view. I felt that I I should give 
um, someone who was running this system a right to reply and hope that that would inform my fiction as well. And so I tried, and I tried really hard. Um, and I, I, I left I don't know how many messages. And I, you know, I got assigned uh, a, a contact in their press office who kept assuring me that they would get back to me at some point. And I realized that in the end, the game they play is that they don't get back to you and they try to run out the clock on you. Um, and so, you know, they're not in the book. They're, they're defined by their absence and by the things that they don't care about and the things that they don't talk about and the silences that they do leave. And so the character um, that I've put inside the, the home office in the story... Um, is uh, is I think quite an accurate portrait based on the people uh, I know who have talked to me, who do work inside that system, who are good people. Um, so I, you know, I I have an informal channel that lets me know what it's like in those places, um, and you know I don't think it's releasing any state secrets to say that a lot of the people in the British Home Office are very disenchanted with it, and they. Um, are good people who um, feel that institutionally the system is moving very slowly. Um, so, I, you know, I hope I haven't been unfair on them in the book. I haven't heard back from them about it. And this is just precisely my point. I haven't heard anything from them, you know, and it's not from want of trying. You know. I was even commissioned recently by a British broadsheet paper um, to, to write a piece about specifically about Campsfield House Detention Centre, um, which was the thing that got all of this started for me when I visited it accidentally, you know, a dozen years ago. Um, you know, the idea was to go in there again, see if conditions have improved. You know, I got the same thing happened again. I got assigned a press contact who ran out the clock on me, you know, until my deadline had come and gone. And, you know, they won't give you access. They won't, they won't talk to you. And the, the reason that exercises me is because I think that democracies ca can't thrive unless everyone's aware of what's going on inside them. And I think, uh, I think one of the duties of, of public bodies is to communicate a little bit about how they're operating. Otherwise, how are we to you know, form a sensible opinion about whether they're doing well or badly? So, you know, it's um, it's it's a really good question that you ask, and it gets to the heart of you know, why, you know, why I write this book. You know, I don't th these these um, evils can only thrive in silence, and you know, I'm I'm against it. I'm against silence. I think we should talk about you know what's going on in our world. Uh, this is your second book, and I wonder if you talk to me about difference in experience for you as a writer between your second and your first book was it were they different yes completely different my first book was incendiary it's a story about um, a mother who loses her son in a terrorist attack on london and she just wants him back so badly that um she can physically see him you know he manifests himself to her and you know she's um She's beyond bereavement, you know, into into insanity, really. Um, and who wouldn't be, you know, when something that precious had had just been taken out of your world? Um, it was very visceral, very emotional book. Uh, I wrote it in six weeks. You know, the first draft of it I wrote in in six weeks. It was one of those things you go into your room, you know, with a with a laptop, and you come out 
you know, six weeks later with a beard and, and, a, and a manuscript and, uh, and, and, and take the consequences later, really. I mean, it was hugely damaging mentally to, to write um, because I just didn't sleep really while I was doing it. And it was really intense. Um, whereas this book was completely different. It was much more thoughtfully done. I I researched it for a long time. I, I wrote it. Um, I wrote the whole thing twice, actually. Um, and so it took, um, yeah, two and a half years to do rather than six weeks. So it's an entirely different beast. It, the, my um, creative process was very different. Um, it was more of a more of a marathon than a sprint, to use the the old phrase and but i hope it it reads more like a sprint you know there's a lot of work has gone into into it and it's been a for me as a writer a healthier process i feel better for having written a book i feel that i've learned a lot and i feel that i've gone on a journey myself through through doing it and even you know even if it were not to be published even if um no one reads it I would think that the time had been worth it this time, whereas um, writing incendiary just felt like a punishment. <laughs> really, it was really hard. And whereas this one's been really quite, you know, quite a joyful project to to do. Oh, that's really interesting that you call it a joyful project because there's so much. It's shot through with with so much pain and, and joy. But could you talk about? We talked about the emotional arcs of the characters and. and what about your emotional arc? Oh, right. Um, yeah, this gets to the heart of why I write. I mean, I, uh, I, I try to make ugly things beautiful, and that gives me great satisfaction in taking something that's horrific and trying to find the hope in it. I see, you know, us lot, humans, if you like, as um, continually suspended between hope and horror. And I think we have the capacity for both within us and the capacity for both to manifest themselves quite unexpectedly on, on any given day. I'm a great believer in people and, their capa- and the capacity of hope to outweigh horror. You know, I thought the fact that we're all still alive on Earth at the moment and not extinct as a species means that we do find it within ourselves daily, you know, not to rip each other's heads off, <laughs> to, um, to get on with each other. And, and when I write, I'm really trying to, um, to, to walk on that very, very um, fine line between the hope and the horror and to find these situations where an ordinary human being could be asked to choose in the most stark terms between them. Um, and when I when I do that, it reminds me how good people are. You know, it reminds me that you know there there is something extremely beautiful in in our existence that that is really precious. And I I define it for myself when I'm when I'm writing. I'm I'm concentrating on it, and that's you know that's. That's my emotional journey, if you like, when I'm when I'm writing. That's why I do it, and it um, it it it's good, you know. <laughs> I come I, I I come out of it feeling uh, better, and and it's because you know 
of the people I meet when I'm doing it now. I just think, you know, in, in researching this book, when you're a writer, it just gives you license to go up to people and ask them like, really simple questions like, how did you feel when your village burned down? Right? That, that you wouldn't generally do. And just sitting there listening to the answers, thinking about them, and then writing it down in a way that's, that's, that has some hope in it is, is what I'm in the game for. I mean, it gives me, um, yeah, gives me a, a sense of engagement with the world that I'm part of the world and that uh, and that I'm still learning <laughs> I think that's that you know, that's why I do it that's my journey I've been speaking with Chris Cleave his new book is Little Bee thank you for joining me Chris thanks Rick You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.